Do you love it when, when nature comes close to you? Um, what I mean by that, this morning, as I was climbing in the car to come here, a hawk flew maybe within 10 feet of me, about knee-high to the ground, and landed in a tree just on the other side of the wall next to our house. And it was just so cool. It was just that moment of, of something majestic and and incredibly skilled. I mean, hawks move through the air the way dolphins move through the water. It, it belongs to them. And I don't know, it's just a good way to start a Sunday morning, I think. All right, we're in Esther chapter 4. It's, it's a much better way than just coming here. <laughs> when, um, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. One time, when I was still very new to ministry, uh, and dinosaurs roamed the earth, I went with a friend one weekend to Lake Nascimento for a weekend of water skiing. And I noticed when we arrived that there was this bulletin board, and on it it said, uh, Sunday morning Protestant service. So um, I thought that would be fun to go to. So Sunday morning, uh, Guy, that was the name of my friend, Guy and I showed up for the service and met a lot of really nice people, very friendly and warm. I shouldn't say a lot. There were probably 20 people there. And um, eventually, because it was starting late, well, (laughs) uh, we're not used to that. Uh, Eventually, this guy got up and somewhat embarrassedly said, our preacher this morning is at another town in another church, and he called to say he's not going to make it in time. And when he paused and looked kind of flustered, I said, I can preach. And he, he looked at me and said, really? Come on up here. <laughs> he, was, he was delivered. You know, that was on me. So um, Guy, who was in Bible college at the time and a, a talented musician and singer, I asked him to sing a song while I begged God to give me something to say. <laughs> now, all in all, it went well, and they were very... Um, grateful afterwards and had positive comments uh, about the meeting that that morning. And, and, And here's what I think. I think that your destiny comes to you. Um, perhaps at first in small ways and unrecognizable. You don't see your reflection in it at first. It's just something that happens or something that you do. But it comes every day 
And then one day it comes in a big way and then you realize that you are stepping into your destiny. I was meant to do this. That is one of the potentials that we're going to learn today in the story of Esther. For now, I just want you to notice the clothing that Mordecai is wearing. It's dust and sackcloth. Sackcloth is like burlap. So you take the soft, comfortable, uh, downy, uh, washed clothing off your body, and you put on this burlap, and it irritates your skin, and this is a form of self-affliction. But it... In that time and culture, people wore their grief. They let their community know that they were heartbroken. Anyone who looked at Mordecai would know this man has experienced some great tragedy. Now, in our mostly white American culture, we tend to hide our emotions. You may suffer inner turmoil, but no one ever sees it. You know, a depression has been referred to as the invisible disease. You know, when, when people are diseased, um, it may show in their body. Uh, it's something that can be diagnosed, and they, they can say, see, I'm, I am really sick, I told you. Um, but depression, you cannot see it. And sometimes you look at a person who seems perfectly at peace, and the next day they attempt suicide, and you have no idea. Um, It comes as a shock sometimes like that. You see, we pay a price for this silence. Human relationships, this is what I've been learning lately. Human relationships are designed to provide comfort and relief in distressful times, provide um, compassion and consolation in sorrow, and help us regulate our own emotions. Uh, It's been said that everyone grieves in their own way, and I fully agree with that. However, and this is important, some forms of grief are unhealthy. And other forms of grief are appropriate and and help you to deal with the loss. But if you get stuck in unhealthy grief, it can mark and distort the remainder of your life. So, uh, you know, that's why in the last 40 years or so, 40, 50 years, grief counseling has become so important. And to belong to a grief group can be very helpful because, again, it's the group. It's the... It's the community of those who suffer, sharing with each other, that you discover, well, I'm not alone, and then you're also receiving from them what your nervous system needs to self-regulate and to absorb the, the intrusion of this painful experience and survive it and go on to thrive. It doesn't mean that the, the hardness of some losses Uh, eventually goes away. There are some that we will carry with us the rest of our lives. But things that are initially bitter become sweet with time. Um, 
I was devastated when my grandfather and uncle died. But the last time I went to sit by their graveside, I just felt the goodness of their lives and how fortunate I was to have them for that short time uh, in my own life. So it's that, it's that consolation, it's that relief of our own heartaches that we deny ourselves when we don't uh, share our griefs, our needs. So he's dressed in sackcloth, he's covered in ashes, and he's going around the city wailing loudly. But he only goes as far as the king's gate. No one is allowed to pass through the king's gate wearing sackcloth. And, and that's not because there's a sign that says appropriate attire required to you know, enter the palace compound. Uh, yeah, I went to speak at a Calvary Chapel one time, and just one time, and uh, that was in. Uh, but uh, I didn't know that they wore a tie. It was a church in a beach community, and I thought that, you know, maybe some of their community would rub off on them. Well, it hadn't. And, um, and they weren't rubbing off on the community either. But anyway, um, I, I didn't bring a tie. I was dressed, you know, pretty much like this. And one of the assistant pastors came up to me and said, um, do you have a tie? And I said, yes, I keep it with my marrying and burying suit. Um, you know, why, why do you ask? Um, and he said, well, does anyone ever wear ties at your church? And I said, well, we don't call them ties. We call them visitor ribbons. Uh, but, but yes. Uh, and he said, well, our pastor, who is on vacation that weekend, our pastor requires that everyone who speaks here wears a tie. And I said, well, I don't have one, and I'm really sorry. And... Uh, they produced one. Uh, I think one of the assistant pastors said, hey, I live close enough to home. He can wear my tie. I'll go get another one. I don't remember it matching. In fact, I don't remember much about it except I didn't like it. But uh, appropriate attire required. That's not what this is about. This was so that the king would not be exposed to human misery, that he wouldn't see anything that would mess up his day. Now, when Esther heard that her cousin was showing these signs of grief, she writhed in agony. That, that has to be a classic line. And it must have sounded absurd to anyone living at that time, because as queen, she had every luxury and was sequestered also within the palace compounds, away from all evidence of, of mourning and sadness and hardship. The royal family was shielded from even the sight of poverty and pain. You know, I think that one of the reasons Abraham Lincoln had and continues to have such great popular appeal is because he, he was born and raised in a one-room log cabin. Uh, how many politicians today have arisen from the working class? 
Well, I have no idea. I don't know the statistics. Um, but not many that, that we know of. And so what we have are people passing laws that have no idea of how those laws affect the average family. Because their family will never know an average income and will, will never feel the effect of those laws. Now, I want to say something that's really important that I say this. I'm not thinking specifically about our current administration. And I'm not a political pundit, and I don't make political comments. Once, through democratic process, we have put someone in the White House. That's our president. And we give that person the opportunity to you know, run the show according to how they think it ought to be. And we watch, and we wait, and we decide if we vote for them next time or not. Um, and that's how it goes. So, I mean, like that for me, that's how it goes. I've always seen it that way. It doesn't matter if it's Democrat or Republican who's voted in. You wait and see. You give them um, the benefit of the doubt. And you just, you just use the democratic process however it suits you. I mean, so you can write congressmen and senators and, you know, you can, you can make your voice heard. So, so I'm not slamming anyone in particular. I'm slamming them all. Uh, <laughs> the king throws the capital city into confusion and then goes off to drink with his buddies. Because that confusion doesn't touch him. He doesn't see it. He's inside the walls of the palace. And none of what's happening outside is allowed to come in. And, and for all of its flaws, the modern media would never tolerate that. They're not going to let the, the king just go off to his drinking party um, without knowing that he's hurt others by his edict. So there's some value in that, too. <laughs> Whether you hate politics or hate the media, um, you know, they are you know, the conditions of our lives, so let's just stop complaining and get with the program. Um, before, I mean, that's my philosophy, and you can dump it if you want, I don't really care. Um, before Esther knew the nature of the crisis, because she, she wasn't aware of this edict. It was published in the capital city, but only people who had access to the inner court of king would be aware of it. She was not even aware of it. Uh, and still she writhed in agony. And that's because she heard about her cousin. And, and his behavior indicated he must have suffered some terrible tragedy. And now she's in pain for him. This is empathy. Um, and every close, loving, healthy relationship includes empathy that you can feel what the other person feels. And it touches you the way it touches them. And we know now something about mirror neurons, that the same structures in their brain that have been activated are activated in your brain. And that's how you feel empathy. That you don't think empathy. Your body feels what they feel. So she has this unbreakable bond with her cousin, but also with her people. And, and their fate is her fate. So even in the king's palace, as Mordecai will say, 
uh, she could not escape those ties. In verse 5, then Esther summoned Hatak, no, Hathak. Um, I'm trying to get this right. And it's not actually a K at the end, it's more a K, right? So you clear your throat like you're going to spit, and you've got his name. Then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go to the king to implore his favor and plead with him for her people. Okay, uh, these are Esther and Mordecai's first communiques, sending back and forth through this servant of hers. And she behaves like a queen. And I, I, I like seeing this in her because, you know, she, she also has come from, you know, not, not the, the upper levels of Persian culture. She is... Uh, uh, an alien, a foreigner in a foreign land. And uh, yet now she's acting like a queen. And she's summoning and giving orders and people have to obey her. So she sends nice clothes to Mordecai, uh, something nice to wear, but he refused them. And then she sent a, a courier out to him to find out the what and the why. What has happened and why are you so distressed? Or what has happened and why did it happen? What's going on? And so Mordecai sends back an explanation and a copy of the edict that was published so she can read it for herself. And he not only informed her, but he also ordered her what to do. He tells Hathak, tell her, you know, uh, order her to do this. That she's got to go before the king and plead. So she's ordered... Now, Mordecai, through him, is ordering her, and she's going to give orders uh, again. Uh, But this had been the nature of their relationship. We're told in chapter 2, verse 20, that she had always done everything that Mordecai told her. So he assumes he can just keep barking orders at her, and she'll do it. But meanwhile, she's also giving orders And we see these commands bouncing back and forth. And this reveals a change that's occurring. A change that's occurring in Esther. And because it's occurring in her, it's occurring in the story, and it's occurring in the hearts and minds of those who are hearing the story as it's being told. Okay, so the change is is here in germ form, but it's beginning to grow and move outward. At this point, well, actually, all through the story, none of the characters within the story could see God at work. Um, Bless you. Um, And neither can we, because the storyteller doesn't reveal God at work. And the storyteller could, because remember, the storyteller knows the end of the story. And he could say, for God's hand was, you know, 
was on Esther. And God's grace was with her. But he doesn't say anything like that. There's no mention of God in the whole story. So they can't see God at work. We don't see God at work. And if we're new to the story, we don't know what's going to happen next. But we do know this, that we don't have to see God to know that he's here. We don't have to see God to know that he's working out his will in the world, in our circumstances, in our lives. We cannot possibly predict how God will rescue us. I'm always willing to give him suggestions. Um, Win the lottery, that's high on my list. Um, (coughs) Yeah, well, I'd have to buy a ticket, wouldn't I? Um, So that would be a miracle (laughs) if I won the lottery because I haven't bought any tickets. But um, you don't know how God's going to come through for you, do you? And sometimes it looks like he's not going to come through. It was uncertain, to be sure. It was uncertain for Mordecai and Esther at this point. Um, But neither can we just sit on our hands. We learn to accept what we cannot change and to expect God to use that for good. Well, Lord, if there's nothing that can be done about this, and I've tried, then I'm just going to surrender to whatever it is. And uh, sometimes it's best just to surrender and not fight. Like if you're caught in a riptide, if you try to fight it and it's taking you offshore and you're trying to swim to shore, you're just going to exhaust yourself because this force is much greater than any force you can come up with. But if you relax and sometimes swim uh, perpendicular to the shore, you swim out of the riptide, which is much easier, and then getting back to shore is no problem. So sometimes those things, those forces that seem to carry us along, we can just surrender, not to the force itself, but to God who rules over all forces, and, uh, and actually find a state of peace. You know, there's a type of peace that I ask for. God, work all this out. Let me see it all work out. But then there's the type of peace that he expects me to rely on more often, and that is to be at peace with what's happening. Because, you know, his will is there too. And our temporary writhing may be part of the process. That Esther was writhing doesn't mean that nothing good was building for her. In fact, the writhing may have been part of the process preparing her for what comes. In verse 9, Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces Know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, who is not summoned, has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter, so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. 
she explains to Mordecai the risk that he's asking her to take. Now, this, this is information she may not have been aware of before she was queen, but she's learned it quickly. You don't go to the king unless you have a royal invitation. Herodotus was a Greek historian. He was born in the 5th century, born in Persia. And he also makes reference to this law that no one could approach the king unless summoned by the king and that the penalty was death. All right. Now, I do not want to cross the line of indecency. Um, so I'm going to make a comment here as delicately as I can and not bring it up again next week. You may read ahead. I don't care. I won't say anything about it next week. All right? Sometimes a scepter is just a scepter, but not really. Okay, if you don't know what I'm talking about, ooh, I do not want to get more detailed. Um, have you heard the expression, a cigar is not, al is not always, no, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Have you ever heard that? Okay, uh, the cigar as phallic symbol. Sometimes the scepter is not, uh, it, sometimes the scepter is just a scepter, but not really. The scepter was never just a scepter. Um, in Genesis, uh, in scripture, <laughs> especially the Hebrew scriptures, feet are sometimes used as a euphemism for private parts. For instance, Saul goes into a cave in the King James Version and covers his feet. And in the New Living Translation, it might be something like he went in to relieve himself. So I could give you biblical examples, but I've already gone too far, and I'm too close to the line. In Genesis, there's this combination of symbols that, that have the same reference point. And this is about the tribe of Judah. Jacob is blessing his sons. And it was from the tribe of Judah that King David sprang. And then this whole uh, dynasty that ruled in Judah was, um, was of the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So here there, there are these euphemisms that give us an idea of what scepter meant in the symbolic coinage of that time. All right, so um, just a little bit further. Sidney Ann Crawford is associate professor of the Hebrew Bible at the University of Nebraska. And she says, Esther uses her knowledge of the king's character in order to retain, pardon me, attain her goal by appealing to his emotions. The author has already demonstrated that Ahasuerus reacts emotionally rather than rationally. 
Esther's best way to appeal to this king is clearly through his emotions. She has put on her royal robes in order to appear as attractive and queenly as possible. Her strategy works, for she wins his favor. And I'll stop here and say no more ever again. Esther felt it significant that she had not been summoned for 30 days. And so she throws that in there. You know, you don't go to the king unless invited. I haven't been summoned these past 30 days. That's a long time. And if I suddenly appear, I, I could lose my head. And her risk is identical to the danger of, that her people are in. Um, that is, if she enters the court, she's a dead woman. The only thing that could save her is the disposition of the king. And the Jews right now are a dead people. And the only thing that could save them is the disposition of the king, and if somehow that's changed. So she goes before the king, hoping to change his disposition toward her and toward her people. So her first response to, to Mordecai heightens the suspense. She says, what are you asking me to do? You're asking me to walk in there and to go straight to the executioner's block. Um, how, how can you do this to me? And, and so well, what's going to happen? As far as we know, there's, there's no other source of help or deliverance. And if she withdraws, what will happen? The, the, the suspense builds, and it, it's all focused on this one person and the turmoil that she's in with what her cousin has just thrown at her. You've got to do this. You have to take this chance. And that's what he says now in their second round of communications, verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days or nights. And I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him to do. All right, so she tries to back away from his challenge. So Mordecai first scolds her, and then he inspires her. He, he reminds her of her status and privilege and he challenged her not to just use that for herself. But he suggested the possibility that all of this had been arranged. Without mentioning God, he still suggests perhaps all of this was arranged for such a time as this. It's a unique opportunity, and who knows? So Esther now has the last word, and she tells him to go. And for the first time in the story, she is commanding him. Now, she, she's commanded her servant. We expect that. But he, Mordecai has given her orders. 
And for the first time, she's resisted. And now she, she turns and issues a command to him. Tell him to go and to round up all the Jews in the capital city and pray for me, fast for me. Not pray, fast for me. And, um, and then he does as she commanded. He knows he's been commanded by her to do something. Okay, if I'm going to take this role, you're going to take this role. This is what you have to do. And he, he obliges. It's so cool, I think, that he recognizes her right to demand this from him, her right to issue a command to him. And here the, you know, the dominant male figure in her life, who's been the authority over her, yields to her authority. It's kind of disappointing when we get to the end of the book. It's Mordecai who, who gets all the fame and glory. You know, Esther is a, an, an also-ran. Uh, but at least at this moment, through this process, she, she comes through as this person who's capable of taking charge when it's necessary. Um, so this is the first reversal in a series of reversals, her commanding her cousin. She accepts the risk rather than doing nothing. Um, I don't know that it's fatalistic, fatalistic, but there is resignation in her. And if I perish, I perish. You know, I can only give it a try. And if it goes badly, it goes badly. What can I say? Esther has stepped into her destiny, or with this statement, uh, she's begun to step into her destiny. Perhaps when she actually enters the king's courtroom, that's when she steps into it. But um, she is becoming the woman she was created to be. And she, she is there, the person that she is, and the position that she has for such a time as this. Of course, the pressures of the hour forced her into this position, forced her to take her life in her own hands, to determine her own destiny. Think about it. This woman went from being under the authority of her cousin to being under the authority of Hege, that first eunuch that she did everything he told her to do, to obviously under the authority of the king, but that was kind of indirect. And, and she lived under male authority. Only now, those who have you know, given her orders, she's now ordering. And, um, and she's making decisions about herself and her own destiny. She pushes the envelope. She stays within the conventions of her culture. She's very polite all the way through very circumspect, but she pushes the envelope and breaks the stereotype and becomes a woman of God hero character. I hope everyone here can accept that. I think, I think that we can. You know, I know there are some churches where the men would be up in arms right now. <laughs> you must be kidding. The Bible doesn't say that. That, that book does not belong in the Bible. Uh, oh, you're an Essene. She, she comes into her own. She, she demonstrates political savvy, um, 
diplomatic skill, exquisite timing. It will be frustrating at first to, to see how she works the time thing. It's like she has this opportunity to talk to the king, and she blows it. She doesn't get to the point. She says, well, you know, if you could come to my house tomorrow for a feast, or, or maybe this afternoon for a feast. So get to it, Esther, you know, time's running out. Um, but she's very uh, exquisite in her timing, and she strategically uses her skills of femininity and sexuality. And she's rather um, much like, like poetry in motion as we watch the way she behaves these next couple of chapters. As Jim mentioned earlier, this is Pentecost Sunday. It's the day that the Holy Spirit gave life to the church, which was just kind of a, a shell until that moment, and how the, the church came alive, energized by this divine power. And the, the Spirit has been with the church ever since. Though some, in some churches, he's asked not to get involved. Um, we, we, we've got a program, and it's running really well. We've got lots of people coming. Please don't come in here messing this up. And please don't let anyone here speak in tongues. Um, there is some place and some time something that of all the people who live on the earth today, only you can do. And that's your destiny. And you're the only one who can do that. Surrender to God is very important. If God said, here's your destiny, we'd all, I think all of us would try to march toward it and probably not hit it. But if we're surrendered to God we will bumble right into it because that's how he works. I think that we discover God's will by living to God as well as we can and his will then manifests itself in our lives. It's easier to see it when you're older looking back than when you're still learning it. But there is something that God has made you to do. There are good works that he created you to perform. Only you can perform those. It might be a smile, a pat on the back, a hug, a handful of change, a kind word. We never know what's going to affect someone. Meet a need. Change a thought or a pattern and give them new direction. We have we have no idea about these things. It may be a stranger. It may be a family member. But you alone can do those. And, and these moments actually occur frequently. Because your destiny is not one big thing, you know, one big burst of glory and then you die. Um, it, it's all through your life. And so you've done this before, unknowingly, perhaps, We rarely notice these moments. I mean, like Mordecai says, and who knows whether you've come to this moment for such a time as this? Who knows? We don't know. We don't always see it. It's not always that clear. But in stepping into them, you actualize your true self. 
Your true self is a potential in Jesus Christ. When you act it out, it becomes actualized. If you are there at that time and you think, I can do this, then the moment is yours and you can. I, I can do this. I can lend a hand. I can show respect. I can, I can love that person. To, to take this kind of risk, and, wh and what kind of risk is it? Well, they might say, keep your dirty change. Or they might say, who do you think you are? You might be rejected. I don't know, depending on the person, you might be slapped in the face. Taking the risk of doing what you know you can do is being a true follower of Jesus Christ. And when you take that risk, you can be sure the spirit of Pentecost will be on you. Would you stand with me, please? May the Lord our God bless us with enough vision to see the opportunity and to know that it's ours. May he grant us enough grace to be surrendered to him. May he grant us enough mercy that we live more mindfully of him and these possibilities that come our way. And may in loving God and following Jesus, we find our true selves. The Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.